Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Gardet. It's Thursday, March 3rd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. President Biden unveiled an ambitious plan to expand access to treatments for COVID-19. Physician and researcher Dr. Kavita Patel joins us to explain why it might not be so simple. We'll also discuss the latest in biotech, including some promising CRISPR data and yet more patent drama. But first, a word from our sponsor. excited to announce a new annual initiative, the Status List. The Status List is the most consequential accounting of leaders in health, medicine, and science. Aided by a select panel of judges, STAT surveyed sectors such as biotechnology and diagnostics, as well as broader arenas like education and policy, to identify the most influential trailblazers, well-known figures, and unheralded heroes who are shaping our life science landscape. To see the list, and to meet this year's 46 honorees, visit us at statnews.com slash status list. That's statnews.com forward slash status list. S-T-A-T-U-S-L-I-S-T. Tuesday night, President Biden delivered his State of the Union address, and the next day, his administration rolled out a new plan to live with COVID going forward. The plan has essentially four main goals, protect against and treat COVID, prepare for new variants, prevent shutdowns of schools and businesses, and help vaccinate the world. One element that captured a lot of attention is called test to treat. Here's how Biden described it. And now we're launching the test to treat initiative. So people can get tested at a pharmacy, and if they prove positive, receive the antiviral pills on the spot at no cost. Folks. So this sounds great, and is something experts in the space have been calling for. These antiviral drugs need to be given early, and as we've discussed a number of times before, getting them is not always easy. But actually making this happen appears to be more complicated than it sounds. Joining us to discuss this, as well as the rest of the Biden plan and everything else in the world of COVID, is Dr. Kavita Patel, a practicing physician, health policy researcher, and contributor to NBC and MSNBC. Dr. Patel, welcome to The Read Out Loud. I am so excited to be here. Big fans of all of you. Thank you. So let's start with this test to treat idea. And specifically, it applies to Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, the two COVID antiviral drugs cleared at the end of last year from Pfizer and Merck. And so you actually prescribe these medicines in your practice. What's your experience been like with them? I do. It's been interesting. So I'm at one of the 500 community health centers that actually received physical shipments. Uh, Now it's been three to four weeks where we've had access on site to both the, I'm just going to say for simplicity, my own, the Merck and Pax, the Merck and Pfizer drugs, the oral antivirals. We do not have Evisheld or the monoclonal antibodies, atrovimab. So But having said that, it's been very interesting, one, to actually um, try to understand the lack of awareness from my fellow clinicians. They're amazing people. Everyone is trying to stay on top of the latest COVID-19 clinical guidance. But the kind of emergence of these antivirals at the same time that we had an Omicron surge created, I think, an incredible amount of like attention distractions where it got really confusing was we knew that these were limited in quantity. We received initially about um, enough for 100 patients for the 
Pfizer drug and about 200 patients for the Merck drug in a clinic that has kind of a volume of about 1,500 to 2,000 patients per week. And at many of them during the surge, about 30% positivity rate at the time. So did a lot of patients. And needless to say, what was difficult was balancing the NIH guidance, which encouraged us to prioritize patients who were high risk for being hospitalized, and also to discourage us from just handing this out to anybody with a positive test. And I think therein lies the confusion. And even more complicated, none of our electronic health records or clinical decision support guidance has any of these, they don't have any of these frameworks built in, which is a really interesting kind of technology solution that should be easy, but has not emerged yet. And I wonder, you know, Dr. Patel, in your practice, I mean, do you, are you using one one of these drugs more than the other? And and then and in terms of outcomes, side effects, like what are, you, what are you seeing in the real world? Yeah. So I'll just say, like, again, um, we felt like having access to both of these was really just incredible. So that led then to, I just mentioned kind of the two to one ratio. We had more access, still do, by the way, of, for the Merck drug compared to the Pfizer drug. However, um, we knew, I knew, and all the clinicians now have been trained that we know that the effectiveness or at least the efficacy in trials and um, some of the data for the Pfizer drug and other profiles, there has been a preference for Paxlovid. And in fact, that's actually consistent over time. What we've done is understood the consistency for that um, recommendation from you know major infectious disease societies, as well as uh, many of the large academic medical centers that have been offering guidance. So we now have an outpatient COVID-19 algorithm that we're essentially following, and it kind of diverts us to do Paxlovid first. And then if, if there are reasons we can't use Paxlovid, the Merck drug, but then if we are out of Paxlovid, then we use the Merck drug. Does that help? And I can walk through the very basics of that algorithm just to show just how complicated this is and why doing it in... Um, doing it in every retail pharmacy is not realistic, nor did I think that was the kind of intention of the Biden administration, but doing it even in a pharmacy-based clinic might not be as straightforward as one thing. Well, that was actually my next question, because, yeah, I mean, in the context of all of that complexity, the relatively terse statement at the State of the Union that if you test positive at a pharmacy, you are handed a course of drugs right there, it sounds like the likelihood is that it will not be that simple. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, some of our listeners are not old enough to remember maybe even who Barack Obama is, but I worked in the Obama administration and it was a moment that even I cringe when Barack Obama famously said, if you like the doctor, you can have, you can keep him or her. And I was like, no, you cannot. It doesn't, it doesn't even matter what we do with the Affordable Care Act. You cannot keep your doctor if they are not in network. But it, that was a moment where the president made a statement and it was important for him to make it, but there were caveats to it. I would say the exact same thing about what President Biden said. So not every person with a positive test needs one of these drugs, but the kind of statement put out makes it seem like you can, whatever your risk profile, you can, with a positive test, get this prescription dispensed and even park it on your shelf, kind of keep it only if you need it. And I've actually heard, I've heard people on media, I've heard, seen people on Twitter and even heard patients say, oh, but I, yeah, that'll be great for when I travel, for example. That's not the intention. So also, I mean, it seems like from what the president said, it's like you walk into any pharmacy, even if you are in this high risk category and you would be eligible and you should be able to get a prescription for this. But 
I've talked with people in the pharmacy industry, pharmacists who are pretty disgruntled that pharmacists are excluded under the emergency use authorizations of these medicines from actually prescribing them. So it sounds like you you have to go to a pharmacy clinic like a CVS Minute clinic, and those are pretty, pretty, you know, you can find them pretty easily. Um, But should pharmacists be able to prescribe? And even in the clinic situation, aren't there a lot of like drug-drug interactions for these? And you have to really worry about somebody's, you know, sort of medical background before you prescribe these. Is is this going to work? I, by the way, another like lasting legacy of my time in the administration was to actually push for more access um, for pharmacists to prescribe. And diabetics are a good example, being able to have a pharmacist that can work with a diabetic patient to adjust their insulin doses. I will say that for now, I don't think that a pharmacist alone without a touch point to some clinician is the responsible thing to do. And here's why. We're really talking about these two oral outpatient drugs, the Pfizer and, and Merck drugs, because monoclonals and other things require complexities that I, you, you know, even the pharmacies can do it. it. It's not applicable to what the president said. The test to treat really is for the orals. Um, and, and I think that because of the drug interactions, there is a number of things that require either changing doses, holding doses, and or potentially outright contraindications, meaning we cannot give it in a situation. Can a pharmacist manage them? Absolutely. But can a pharmacist do it without also having the safety net that if something happens and you do need to have a clinical team member? No. So the really tough kind of clinical conundrum is that one, two days into Paxlovid, for example, common scenarios, I'll get a call that says, I've thrown up, I feel awful. Do you think it's the drug or do you think it's COVID? And, and I actually literally say, I don't know. I said, it's more likely the drug, given what we know about its side effects. But I don't know. And let's have you come in. Let me just check your liver function. Let's just make sure, you know, you look okay. And that's a real kind of world example. So I say that for now because supply is limited and we really do want to prioritize this for higher risk patients. What about expanding this to at-home tests? I mean, most of us now have these tests at our house, and this is what we're using to test ourselves for COVID. Um, is that is that conceivable? I and mean, is that something that you think should happen eventually? I do. I I having said all the things that people can't do, you know, to try to prescribe this drug or who should or shouldn't do it now. I still believe that access is essential, and that includes, to your point, at home testing. And we've now been seeing more and more real world evidence that kind of illustrate that even though the rapid antigen tests have their flaws and setbacks, they all still seem to perform well when it comes to detecting real positives. So that's, I think, where, to your point, if you get a positive, we believe the positive. And then I think that can trigger, and it can be all done through telehealth, but that needs to happen in a more organized fashion than it does today. So I see why the Biden administration chose you know, a little bit more brick and mortar approach for now. And maybe three months from now, that might be the reality, but it's not today's reality. So beyond test to treat, what did you make of the rest of the White House's plan for for COVID-19? I have been supportive of this administration's efforts, but very critical when they have missed something and have no problem criticizing any part of the plan if it's appropriate. I will say there's so much in there that covers many of the bases from current treatments, from prevention, from surveillance, from enhancing kind of the strategic national stockpile. Um, I thought the call out for the EPA and OSHA on ventilation standards was excellent. I mean, but here's the problem. Uh, And I think that there have been several articles, I think some 
some of you have commented on this about the cost and how much of this is going to depend on successful appropriations from Congress. And that's always, a, you know, that's an X factor you can't predict. And then finally, I sa- I'll say what's missing. So let me just kind of comment. Um, having done f- FDA reauthorizations, you know, there's language in there about helping the FDA kind of use an appropriate standard, much like we do for flu vaccine around immunogenicity so that we can turn around. And I think the president has said, you know, and Secretary Becerra, if there is a new kind of variant tailored or new vaccine available, we'll try to make sure we can get it into, you know, shots and arms in 100 days. Those cycles are not necessarily, um, those, those are not as simple as perhaps were outlined. And it would probably be nice to see a little bit more detail. The thing that I worry about with that is that uh, the rapid kind of cycle that they're describing is good. And, but it doesn't capture some of the T-cell immunity that we're starting to learn that's more and more critical. So again, that's why I think kind of uh, having a more natural line to what the NIH has been understanding about, especially the federally subsidized vaccines, Moderna, for example, Novavax and others would be very helpful. It's also missing a critical piece on information to the public. You can call it disinformation or you can call it more reliable sources of information. I think the administration would tell you that's packed into the websites that they're planning to deploy, but I can tell you right now, kind of on the front lines, disinformation's winning. Even people who want to get vaccinated repeat very wrong things to me and it's hard to course correct. That has been what I witness as policy-wise, undermining almost every aspect of COVID-19 prevention and treatment. Hmm, that is so troubling. It's hard to deal with. But however, being a true source of information and having standards that are set that say our sources are thus and here's how it's easily accessible to people that are not just these complex CDC MMWRs that nobody other than like someone with three degrees can read really should be a priority <laughs> where that's I guess that's the better way of saying it. Well, speaking of these complex MMWRs, uh, we, we actually got one this week that sort of complemented a series of new um, studies looking at vaccine effectiveness against Omicron. And a lot of the findings were, you know, pretty alarming. The first one that came out was one suggesting perhaps the dose in kids ages 5 to 11 may be too low, specifically a New York State study sort of compared Uh, the efficacy or the effectiveness against Omicron in 11-year-olds versus 12-year-olds. The 11-year-olds get a third of the dose, and the effectiveness for 11-year-olds was like 11% against Omicron, whereas it was like 67% for 12-year-olds. But then a CDC study came out. Um, Helen Branswell wrote about this in such a great way and, and talked to some of the study leads who said, our data don't support the New York state data. So you know, what should we know about that? And then, of course, there was the UK study that came out in the New England Journal on Wednesday night that suggested two doses of Pfizer or AstraZeneca after about four to five months against Omicron essentially provide no protection. Moderna as well. It was like 9% for Pfizer and 15% for Moderna. You give a boost and it helps for a little while. It gets you back up to 60 to 70%. But then, you know, two and a half months goes by and it's gone back down to 40% or something like that. Um, what should we make of this? And you mentioned the T cells, of course, that plays into the protection against severe disease. How, how much should we be caring about the protection against mild disease versus the ability of these vaccines in the first iteration of them to keep us out of the hospital longer term? Yeah, I think it's real mind shift, isn't it? I often read Helen just to kind of make sure I'm not getting lost in the weeds. And she put it very well that, you know, what we have are two studies. That's what we have. We have two real world studies and that's what we have. And then we have the clinical trials and we have to look at the whole kind of preponderance of data. 
Here's what I would make out of it. I do think that it's important that on the New York State study, I've talked to those authors and they have also agreed and they have some of it caveats in their full preprint. I suspect when it's peer reviewed, it'll come out even more. Um, that 11%, for example, the confidence interval that co- crosses zero. And so there are people who wouldn't know that wouldn't really understand how to dive d- d- deeper into it. But the bottom line is that statistically, you can't have that much confidence in that 11% as a result of this wide confidence interval that you could drive a truck through. So what does that mean? It's I think your point is very relevant that as a parent of anybody under the age of 12, we really are kind of saying these vaccines are incredible at severe disease and death, which is obviously what we all want for our children, but may not protect against symptomatic infection. I think the X factor for me about saying that I don't care about symptomatic infection, which this is a whole other podcast, is long COVID. The other study that came out that raised my alarm bells was the uh, VA St. Louis study, St. Louis-based study on cardiac outcomes a year after COVID. Uh, Obviously, these were people who were largely unvaccinated, but people who did not have these really persistent symptoms of quote-unquote classic post-acute sequelae of COVID, but a year later had heart failure, atrial fibrillation, you know, heart arrhythmias that they could trace back to the COVID infection. So for all those reasons, I still think it's important to kind of consider symptomatic infection or some of these other clinical endpoints that might not be, um, they might not have been the pivotal trial or the primary endpoints, maybe even not the secondary endpoints, but are important in consideration I do worry, though, that those two studies, MMWR and the New York State study, it has resulted in people saying to me, see, I told you we didn't need to get our kids vaccinated. It wasn't as big of a deal. I actually literally had a parent say that after um, I made it very clear that most schools probably will have vaccine, COVID vaccine as part of their required vaccine schedule in 2023 after there's a BLA, which I, you know, but it's, it's interesting. People are already kind of raising doubt around that now. Looking even further into the future, you know, beyond even just convincing people to get that primary series of vaccines, there's the question of just how regularly boosters will be advisable or needed. And we've obviously heard uh, the companies that make money by selling these vaccines are pretty resolute that an annual booster or something like that will be necessary. But, you know, it seems like there's a lot of debate as to whether that's true and, and to what extent that's true and for whom. What do you think about how the data are shaping up and, and what we might end up needing or requiring in the future? Of course, everyone looked at the fourth shot Israeli data, 60 years and older, and kind of you you could take whatever you want away from it uh, with me taking away. Yeah, I think it's pretty useful to probably, especially in older patients, to give them a fourth shot. Whereas others thought that the marginal benefit of that fourth shot was not um, that much more than what we know for a original two-shot series plus booster, so not for immunocompromised people, but for other kind of majority of the population. So I, but I, I, it feels like the, um, especially when we look at how the future variants are likely to be related more closely to Omicron and that it was the genetic makeup of Omicron, which was kind of challenging to our current vaccines and that they are, what now, five, six generations from the Wuhan strain kind of originally used for the current vaccine technology, it does feel like some either updated vaccine or a fourth shot might be useful such that we can have, you know, so that we can have some clarity around this. And I, so I, it's, it's why I have said people have been asking me for fourth shots because you can see how many people now who had been doing the boosters at the time of guidance, including myself, by the way, I'm now almost five and a half months out from my booster 
we're all wondering, you know, what to do. And everybody has said, right now, we don't have as much viral activity in the community. And we know that boosters can take effect pretty darn quickly. So there's no reason to try to seek out a fourth dose now, even though it's not, by the way, not encouraging people to do it. It's not authorized. It's not recommended. And ASIP has um, not said anything outside of immunocompromised. But it feels like the data is pointing towards some additional shot, whether it's variant specific or just shot number four. Well, Dr. Patel, this has been really helpful. And thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. There were a few interesting developments with some just kind of crazy timing um, all about CRISPR. There was some patent news and there was some clinical data. Um, Adam, choose your adventure. Which one do you want to start with? Walk us through it. <laughs> well, I, I covered I covered the CRISPR data. So let's start with that. And I know you hate the patent story anyway. <laughs> oh, well, you know, well, we get to it anyway. But yeah, so on Monday evening, we got a really important clinical update from Intelia Therapeutics on their in vivo CRISPR-based treatment. And when I say in vivo, I mean in the body. And that was what's really kind of interesting about this, because they're the first of the CRISPR companies to show that you can systemically inject somebody with one of these treatments, and it goes to the liver and it alters it, you know, it alters the DNA in the liver cells and then has a therapeutic effect. If you think about what we've seen in the past is uh, cells have to be taken outside the body and then crispered in a lab, put back in or, you know, or injected directly into tissue like the eye. So this was really important and we had some new data from them. A higher dose showed more of an effect. They're, they're treating a genetic nerve disease that uh, causes this kind of toxic protein to build up in nerve tissue. And what they showed was some really impressive reductions in, uh, in the levels of that, of that protein. And then minutes, truly minutes uh, after that news became public, the United States Patent and Trademark Office made some news of its own. The gist basically is that they rejected an appeal in the seven year long now, I think, patent dispute over just who discovered how CRISPR could become a human medicine. And the appeal was by the University of California, Berkeley, and it, the rejection is thus in favor of the Broad Institute and MIT. And it appears as though, and I, I feel like I've heard this before, so I am uh, hesitant to, to speak it into public, but it appears as though this is a relatively final action in that seven-year dispute, suggesting that the Broad Institute and MIT have prevailed, uh, and the University of California, Berkeley, and the Max Planck Institute in Germany, sort of less important in the United States, but still um, have failed. Now, the likely read-through of that, it seems, is that the companies that aligned themselves with Berkeley, which includes Intellia and also CRISPR Therapeutics, will have to take out a license on the Broad patents, um, which are currently licensed to Editas Medicine and some others on that side. As to whether this is actually important um, for <laughs> the world, probably not. We've seen these things play out many times before, and there's like Sturm and Drong around legal threats, but eventually, quietly, the companies agree to some sort of nominal fee and, and the world marches on. I think the actual data from Intellia are infinitely more um, worth thinking about for anyone listening to this, unless you are an attorney, um, than, than this. But I guess hopefully, just in a narrative terms, it'd be nice if this kind of background noise around CRISPR were put to bed for now. It's not, 
I don't think anybody who, you know, read the Walter Isaacson book or is interested in this science is that caught up at this point um, in the nuances of the legal arguments as to who invented it. At the same time, though, like, I know that Adam, Adam, I remember like when this story like first was happening in 2015 or 2016, I just remember Adam complaining about how little it really mattered, like, because you always do figure out some financial arrangement and then life goes on. But like, there's also just the the credit part of it, right? I mean, and, and of course, there are other ways of awarding credit in science. Perhaps one of the most important is the Nobel Prize, which went to <laughs> um, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, who were um, Jennifer Doudna, of course, being with Berkeley um, and uh, Emmanuel Charpentier, who's part of this lawsuit as well. Um, but then just the entire history of how things with CRISPR have played out since then. And as we discussed uh, with our Eric Lander <laughs> episode, um, the, the idea that he's, of course, so affiliated with Brooke and then sort of wrote out the importance of their contributions to CRISPR, to human medicine, you know, it all kind of ties in together. So I feel like that's why a lot of people are very interested in this beyond just the sort of the legal questions and the business questions of it. No, that that's totally true, Meg. I, I think from a scientific standpoint, I mean, I don't think anybody is saying that you know, Jennifer Doudna or Emmanuel Charpentier, like they didn't invent CRISPR. I think, you know, this is really, you know, you know what this was, comes down to is that like who filed the patent first, right. right? Like who who actually got to the patent office with their application before the other person? And But it's not really about that, is it? Isn't it more about like who had the real idea that this could be applied to editing human cells? Yeah, I think, you know, you make a good point, Meg. And, and I think my, you know, sort of, my my issue with this has always been that yeah i think ultimately everyone at some point there will be a settlement right that that the companies that don't have the licenses now will take out licenses and and it, i think what will be interesting to see is sort of how what the terms of those deals are and whether this protracted litigation that has now gone on for you know it seems like forever um whether that will influence the kind of the terms and whether, you know, like now that the MIT and Broad have, have won, are they going to sort of hold out for more, um, you know, including Editas now who has the exclusive licenses for these and, and sort of what they do, um, you know, and we've obviously seen the effect on the stock prices this week, uh, you know, even though Intelia had this great clinical data that I talked about earlier, you know, their stock was way down um, this week because, again, they're on the losing side of the patent fight. Uh, same with CRISPR therapeutics. Editas was up because they have now what seems like an enviable uh, patent position that you know they may be able to monetize in some way. So I, you know, we'll see how it all works out at the end. But I, I, I guess I'll still, I still will stick with my sort of eye rolly take on this that you know that that we're not gonna, no one's gonna stop you know these CRISPR treatments from being developed. Um, over over a bunch of patents. In other patent news this week, Moderna um, had some developments. Damien, do you want to tell us about those? Yes. So this relates not to the sort of background now dispute over who invented the actual messenger RNA in their vaccine between Moderna and the NIH, but rather the lipid nanoparticles that are used to deliver mRNA to their target cells, which as many people have pointed out, is really the workhorse of this technology. And without lipid nanoparticles, the vaccines that millions and millions of people around the world have received would have been impossible. So the news is that a pair of companies, Arbutus and Genevant, I believe, but it could be Genevant, we'll just call them the duo. Uh, this duo of companies is suing Moderna over the uh, lipid nanoparticles that, that Moderna used. And this patent dispute actually goes back many, many years and gets a little bit arcane. But basically, 
Um, those two companies have insisted for quite a while that all of Moderna's mRNA work relied on their patents for lipid nanoparticles, which they've licensed to other companies for other treatments and are widely acknowledged as being the originators of, of a certain version of that technology. Moderna, meanwhile, has maintained for years that they have their own lipid nanoparticle delivery and that they are not infringing those patents. And in this sort of cold war that's been brewing between the two of them, there was a sub-license that was taken out, there were some uh, angry quotes given to the press, and Moderna quietly challenged a series of these patents held by this duo of companies and failed in two cases to get them invalidated, all the while publicly saying that they weren't infringing the patent estate in the first place, which was sort of a curious development. And that all culminated in this week, the duo of companies filing a lawsuit against Moderna, making claims basically that the company has been... Uh, illegally using and flagrantly using its intellectual property to now make billions and billions of dollars from this vaccine. It's key to note that they are not seeking an injunction. They're not trying to get Moderna's vaccine off the market. They go to pains in the lawsuit to say that they applaud Moderna's work and that, you know, vaccinating the world against COVID-19 is a virtuous thing to do. However, they insist that they are entitled a cut of all the money that Moderna has made, which, considering this has become such an incredibly financially successful product, would conceivably be billions of dollars. So if any of you good people out there want us to talk more about patents in future episodes, just drop us a line. I don't <laughs> expect to hear from any of you. <laughs> and that does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like. And if you want to hear more about patents, <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, except when we talk about patents, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. 